Okay, so I just have to say, I watched this video a couple days ago, and it definitely changed my life. What? I'm still reflecting on how it did. What was this video about? This life-changing video? Nothing like it. So I'm going to take you on this journey with me. What if I really don't want to go? <laughs> I You're buckled in and you don't have the key, so you're coming along with me. So I'm on YouTube, and I find this video that uh, is, it's an ASMR video. And I'm not, I don't have a problem with most ASMR videos. I don't like food ones. Yeah, they're gross. Yeah, well, this was a food one. And this uh, this woman, she has, basically, they look like crepe burritos. Like, she has a big crepe, and she fills it with, like, whipped cream and fruit, like whole strawberries and stuff, and then rolls it up like a burrito. It honestly sounded really tasty. I'm like, that'd be a fun dessert. But the sound of biting through crepe, whipped cream, and a strawberry up close to the mic, I mean... I ascended out of my body. I stared into the void. It looked back at me with horror in its eyes. Time both stopped and then went in every direction. All at the same time, I saw civilizations rise and fall. I saw atoms being torn apart and put back together. I don't know. When I say it was life-changing, I don't know if I can never look at myself in the mirror the same way after hearing that sound. And I was wearing headphones because, of course, I'm dumb like that. <laughs> so now I'm finally picking up on the fact that the sound was awful. Which, I mean, I'm assuming when you described it, uh, the actual sound, not everything that happened to you afterward. I mean, that sounds nasty. But at a certain point, I was like, did he enjoy this? Because I, I didn't know where you were going. No, I didn't. The sound was, I mean, other than describing exactly what it was, it was akin to like, I don't know, cartoon level birthday cake frosting covering a styrofoam ball being bitten into, if that makes sense, but squelchy. I didn't like it. I didn't like it one bit. And so I'm still a little traumatized from that. I just, but like, why did you even watch the video? Why did, why? Because I thought it was a recipe video. Oh, but it was not. It was not a recipe video. Hearing people eat is one of my biggest pet peeves. It is the grossest thing ever. And I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago about when you can hear someone on your video calls, like drinking their coffee in the morning. Y'all, oh, we if, did. if, and I'm just going to remind listeners yeah, people can hear you drinking your coffee if you're not on mute. So, like, make sure you're on mute or that a lot of people are talking because it's so gross. Well, if you think about it, when you're wearing headphones, the microphone is, like, right up against your throat. So, your swallowing is uh, is audible. Well, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And rest assured, uh, this is not a food ASMR podcast or asmr at all we're not going to be sitting here like and then he walked into the building i don't know he he takes very dainty steps i guess is what that was <laughs> he's wearing kitten heels <laughs> he's just like very like 1950s secretary like oh i gotta get this to the boss 
Yeah, the only ASMR anything you're going to get from us is when we open wine bottles. Oh, that is true. That and is pour true. it. Um, but I will say, like, to your comment about not liking the sound of people eating and stuff, I don't either. I don't think I have, like, misophonia, which is, like, when you have, like, an actual, like, negative reaction. I think, like, hearing certain sounds can trigger the fight or flight. And, like, I, I'm not to that level, of not enjoying uh, people eating. But when it's ASMR and it's like the cacophony of the world's voices surrounding the inside of your skull, that's different. We talked about this last episode, but we have finally picked a date for our next drink with us with our Patreon members. So that's going to be April 17th at 1 p.m. Central. And we are really looking forward to hopping on, chatting with you guys. These are always so much fun. So come ready to chat. Come with your drink of choice, beer, wine, cocktails, water, Gatorade, I don't care, coffee, whatever you feel like drinking. Hop on, drink with us. Yes. Also, make sure that um, you subscribe to us on your podcast listening platform of choice. If you're hearing our voices now and you're thinking, am I subscribed? I don't know if you are or not. So check it out. If you aren't, hit that subscribe button or whatever. It might be follow. Whatever version of it is, hit that. So every time we post a new episode, uh, it'll you'll get it right there. So Tyler, let's tell our listeners... What are we talking about today? So our topic for this episode, um, we're uh, turning the heat up, huh? Huh? Letting all burners go. Uh, uh, it's arson. We're talking about fire and arson. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is one of those crimes that I feel like is unique, sometimes intertwined with a lot of other crimes or sometimes just done. Arson's interesting and we've never covered it. And I was honestly a bit surprised we had never picked up this topic oh me too and i will say and this is a weird train of thought but Brittany, what was your first foray into arson um, not that we're arsonists but like in learning about it or being entertained by it it was probably when i burned a big pile of my ex-boyfriend's stuff no i'm just kidding um, your ex-boyfriend's <laughs> just all of the period uh, yeah not their stuff <laughs> no um honestly probably just a piece of paper that's boring. Um, so mine was, I mean, I'm thinking of like hearing about actual arson, not like me <laughs> playing with fire. <laughs> that oh, was a I Boy thought... Scout. I played with fire too much. I thought you were asking me like literally the first time I played with fire. So <laughs> I didn't answer the right no, question. No, Drew Barrymore. <laughs> I'm not asking that. Okay. So the question you actually asked, let me answer this correctly. Let's just rewind. So you're basically Take it like- back now, y'all. Two hops this time. Okay. So you're asking when I first heard of arson or like my first case, I remember. And I actually don't have an answer for you because I have no idea. Okay. Well, my first like, I guess, foray into learning about arson was actually this novel I read in either middle school or high school. I think it was high school. And it's Kerosene by Chris Wooding. He's like a smaller British author. And I really liked the book. I mean, it's this like teen kid. He sets fires. But it also, like he and his friend like sell weed and stuff. So it's it's like a, I don't know, more high school level read. 
of young adult fiction, but it's really good. And it's one of those, I think I found it in like the $1 book bin at one of the local bookstores. The one that used to be a blockbuster and now is a wine store. When was anyway, it a bookstore? I, I think for like 12 minutes. Oh, well, I don't, I don't even remember that. <laughs> yeah, I remember getting it there and it being like one I'd never heard of. I liked the cover. I thought the title Kerosene was interesting and I really enjoyed it. But yeah, so arson, setting fires. But before we set some fires, we're going to drink some wine. Yeah, we will. Brittany, what wine are you drinking? What wine are you going to use to quelch the fire inside you? I'll be drinking the 2019 Saint-Sagnol Coteau Verrois in Provence Rosé from France. Yeah, oh, kind of- you're doing a rosé. Yeah. Are you doing a rosé? I'm doing a rosé. Oh my god. I I felt like it had been a really long time since we had done a rosé. And I was like, you know, the weather's like really nice now and, you know, hot and fire and rosé. Yeah, that wasn't my train of thought. I kind of ended at, we haven't done this in a while. So yeah. (laughs) So this one has one of those really cool bottle shapes where it almost looks like a person. It kind of... It looks like a bottle of Mrs. Buttersworth. (laughs) That's what I was... (laughs) about to say it does it does it looks like syrup but i am not drinking syrup it is in fact rosé so this is one i got for about eight dollars at trader joe's i've never tried this one i'm really excited because y'all know how much i love my french rosés and rosés as we know they're generally on the lighter side they're dry and they're a bit higher in the acidity This rosé has notes of strawberry, watermelon, and then it turns into some of that peach and pear and a little hint of citrus. So I'm super excited to give this one a go. And a few of the people who reviewed it did note that there's a little bit of like honeysuckle and, you know, kind of minerals and honey at the end. So I'm, I'm looking forward to see like what fruits I'm tasting and what flowers I'm tasting in this. Or I guess floral. Is it the same thing? I guess kind of. Yeah. It is a a cork wine. And I've got this. I got it for Christmas. And I've used it a few times, but never on the podcast. Not the bottle of wine. This thing. It's one of those aerators that has like, I think it's called like an icicle or whatever. But it's got this stainless steel like tube. And you put it in after you've poured your first glass. I made that mistake before. And I felt like the biggest idiot because i literally opened my wine and shoved this in (laughs) and wine went all over the counter because obviously i have yet to make room in the bottle but it's one of those tools that you use when you can't put the wine back in the fridge and so i'm going to test it out for the podcast but uh after i pour this first glass not gonna fuck up like i did last time fair so i got the foil off and it's one of those plastic corks so it's not like a real cork which Honestly, sometimes the opener just goes in so much smoother. But let's... Boom. Pour. It's very light. Okay, I did a big pour because, again, like, didn't want to get the wine everywhere. Let's get this thing in here. Oops, there was a piece of ice. Brittany stabbed that in with the conviction of someone recreating a murder on, like, a shitty true TV documentary. Well, Tyler, while my rosé sits here, because it doesn't have to breathe, because it's rosé, tell me about your rosé. The winner is rosé! 
Okay, so the wine I'm drinking today is the California Roots Rosé from California. And California Roots, it's the Target wine, like yep. from the store Target, and it's $5. I think I did the Chardonnay years you ago. You did. Yeah. You did the Chardonnay quite a while back. And um, I, to be honest, was getting my oil changed and was next to a Target. And I was like, oh, yeah, the California Roots, which is a weird way to put like emphasis on. <laughs> the California Roots, they're playing at Target today. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought of like the California Raisins. Didn't it back in the day, the cartoons, they were like a band. It's okay. I'm old. Go- continue. Like the Sunmate lady? No. She, that was Lana Del Rey. No, because those are sun-made. I'm talking about California raisins. Like, it's different, but okay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, anyways, yeah. California Roots, wine, it's $5, but we've had a lot of really successful, really great cheap wine. So I was like, I want to try this one. And so I bought it. And then afterwards, I read up on it. And maybe it was a mistake, maybe not. Because one of the articles I found, they did a blind taste test with this and a nice, like, $18 rosé. Which, the $18 one was obviously preferred. But the California Roots rosé was called A Little Chemically, Not Good, Immature Like Bath and Body Works Perfume, and Dry But Not In a Good Way. And I'm like, okay... So the bottle says that it is crafted from premium grapes. They're grown under the California sun. It has berry and citrus flavors that impart the taste of summer. Pairs great with grilled shrimp, a crisp spinach salad. I mean, it's it's saying it's a fine rosé. So after hearing that uh, scathing review, where they also ended it with saying they recommend chilling it or adding a lot of ice to improve the flavor... I was like, let me see what the people think. Like, what real people. Let me, let's take to the streets and interview people what they think. Wasn't as successful as I hoped. (laughs) Uh, One person said, I love rosé, but this ain't it. I have many different rosés. I have many different rosés. Well, good for you. I'm glad you have a well-stocked wine fridge. But I literally could not even finish one cup of this. Probably because it was a cup, not a glass. It was like smelly feet. Hard pass on this wine. I do like other types of wines in this brand, but they got this type all wrong. And I was like, okay, let me find the most positive review so it can support my argument. Did someone literally say like, this wine's okay? No, I did find someone that said this wine is amazing, with amazing in all caps. Don't let the reviews mislead you. For $5... There's nothing better on the market. Absolutely purchase and you will have a great night. And I'm like, okay. Saying it's absolutely amazing, but then also saying for five bucks it's the best are very different things. It is. And also the like incentive on like your night's going to be great. Just like drink it fast, you'll be drunk, and you won't know it's crap. I know. You could say that about Burnett's. <laughs> but um, here we go. Oh, also it's a 2019. I didn't say that. Smell fruity? I'm scared. I'm scared for you. Also, because I'm going to have like this great rosé and you're going to drink a cup of that. I smell, I forgot to tell you what I smell. I definitely smell strawberries. Like really heavy strawberries. Ooh, you know what? It smells like your favorite candy. Like not not necessarily. I don't. Oh, the strawberry grandma candies with the goo in the middle? 
Yeah, that's what it smells like. Mm. This one, it, it smells like a rosé. I mean, some very light, maybe strawberry. I can get some citrus notes. Maybe a tiny hint of some kind of floral, like, honestly, like rose. That's probably the chemicals. Okay. <laughs> probably the chemicals. <laughs> All right. Well, without further ado, let's taste. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, mama, that's garbage. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So it's bad. (laughs) It's bad. Oh, it's bad. It's bad. But I'm going to drink the whole bottle. Okay. Like, it's not bad enough that I'm not going to finish my cup. So (laughs) tell us why it's bad. Does it taste like chemicals? I mean, yeah. I think that's the biggest part. You know how, like, when you have a diet soda or something, that, like, almost slippery chemicaliness from, like, the aspartame? Yeah, I know exactly this what you're doesn't, talking about. This doesn't taste like aspartame, but it has that, like, I don't know, that false god chemical smell <laughs> or chemical taste. That's gross and disappointing, and I'm sorry to hear that. But it has a flavor... <laughs> and it's cold, and it's wine, so, you know. Vis-a-vis, <laughs> you're going to drink it. I'm going to drink it. Um, <laughs> what did they say I'm supposed to taste? Berry and citrus. Um, Ew, berry? No. Ugh. I mean, like, raspberry. Strawberry is a berry. I know, but Strop when you bop, s- bop, a berry. But when you say berries, you think about, I don't know, not strawberries? <laughs> I think raspberries. <laughs> I think, I think actually like, mixed berry shit that's I like raspberry, blueberry, and blackberry, which is like my favorite flavor. <laughs> Even I, though berries kind of suck. No, they like, don't. You, you take that back. No. Like, let's let's tear down our own walls. Let's be vulnerable for a second. Berries aren't that great. Oh my god. Get out of here. Raspberries are not as good as you would want them to be, though. But blackberries exactly. are the bomb. Okay, blackberries are different. They hit different. And so do, like, Marion berries, if you're ever up in, like, Oregon or Washington. Oh, yeah, because that jam is thebomb.com. Oh, oh my God. Like, Eleanor's yogurt with the... I can't... Mm. Anyways, but, like, blueberries... Blueberries suck, y'all. Everyone... No one actually likes blueberries. But you read, you know, like, the boxcar children about them, like, gathering up blueberries, and you're like, these sound incredible. No, they suck. (laughs) They're only good in muffins. That's real. That is real. And then, yeah, raspberries, like, raspberry-flavored stuff is amazing. Raspberries themselves, you're like, yeah, it's kind of like if a raspberry breathed next to me. It has flavor, I guess. And it's kind of fuzzy. Yeah. So and expensive. <laughs> berries are expensive. I will They're give you that. They're not worth it. Okay, except blackberries. They are. I love blackberries. Yeah. So this wine does not taste like chemicals. It tastes like heaven in a glass. Um, it's a really good rosé. It's a nice, dry, beautiful rosé with strawberry and it's got a little bit of honey. Tyler was just like singing to me without words. And I was completely ignoring him. It was Heaven is a Place on Earth by Belinda Carlisle. <laughs> so, okay. What was I saying? So it has like strawberry 
a little bit of honey towards the end. And I am picking up on some minerality that gives it like balance. It's a really good balanced flavor. You know what this, you know what mine tastes like actually? This is what it tastes like. It tastes like bad laundry detergent. That's nasty. That's what it is. (laughs) Um, I would not try to wash your clothes with that though. It might burn a hole through them. But I will say this is definitely not one of the driest French rosés that I've ever had. It has more of that strawberry flavor. It's not sweet, but that strawberry is so dominant both in the smell and in the taste that it's not like my favorite rosés. Like this is really good, but it's not giving me that characteristic that I love out of French rosés, which are just like super dry with more of a whisper of strawberry. This is straight up on the nose and on the tip of the tongue. Yeah. Yeah, because you really like the Cote de Provence uh, rosés. Yeah, this one is not, like I said, I mean, it's not Cote de Provence. It's the Cotau Um, I hope I'm saying that right. But yeah, so it's talking about like hilltop villages. And so it's just a little bit different. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hills. I mean, this does say Vin de Provence, but yeah. This is not, like I was saying, not like all the rosés that I'm used to, like my faves, like we were just talking about. This one's from those hilltops, which is a little bit different. guess that means it's a little bit fruitier. But um, yes, it doesn't taste like battery acid. So I'm in the winning category here. I didn't say mine tastes like battery acid. I said washer <laughs> fluid. Oh, sorry. You actually said laundry detergent. That's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, we have our wines. Well, you have wine. I have an alcoholic grape drink. Um, Brittany, what is your arson case you're going to talk about today? So this is one that I've... Re- I'm really excited to to talk about this case, which is one that I've investigated a little bit more than I actually would have would have thought because there's a book. And I haven't finished the book, full transparency, but I've read a lot of it. So I will be talking about the fires in Accomack County, Virginia. So for those who have heard of this case, you've probably heard of it from the book American Fire, Love, Arson, and Life in a Vanishing Land by Monica Hess. And that's how I heard of this case. That is a great book title. Oh, it's fantastic. And it's a fantastic book. I was reading it for book club, and this was back when I lived in Austin, and we all know that sometimes when you're reading a book for a book club, you, you don't finish it. Like, that's not uncommon. Actually, it's not uncommon to start books and not finish them, period. Book club or not. <laughs> but so I started this one and I just I didn't finish it in time. It was whatever. But it was really good. And it turns out Monica also wrote an article for the Washington Post. And so I used that as a source. And then I also found an article in the New York Times by Jennifer Senior. And then I also used a New York Post article by Stephanie Cohen. So a lot of these articles, though, they were talking about the book. And Monica just spent so much time and she was so close to this case that that book has really become like the best resource. So if you're wanting to dive more into this case, I highly recommend you pick up American Fire. It was also a book of the month book. And I'm just going to like shamelessly plug if you guys message us on 
our Instagram, I'll send you my book of the month code. You either get a book for like $5 or $10, like they change it. But I, yeah, I'm shameless plug because I'm obsessed with book of the month. But this is one of the books that was a book of the month pick. And they're just, they're so heavily influential in the publishing world that pretty much all the books they pick are amazing. Done with shameless plug. Okay. So are you ready for me to get into this? This case is crazy. And Tyler, you don't know anything about it, do you? No, just that like they were around DC. Well, it is Virginia. <laughs> so there you yeah. go. <laughs> so uh, yeah, fire. <laughs> All right. So on November 12th, 2012, Deborah Clark notices the abandoned house across the field from her house in Accomack County, Virginia was on fire. She also knew this house, it didn't have working power, hadn't in years. It was a completely abandoned home. So she automatically knew, like, this is not a mistake. (laughs) Sorry. I'm shocked. At how bad it is? Yes! You guys, I'm trying to, like, get into my case. And Tyler (laughs) is over here just trying to drink this, choke down this wine. (laughs) Well, it's definitely one that once I get at least a glass and a half in, it won't matter I'm shocked. I, like, because you enjoyed the Chardonnay well enough, and I've heard decent things about the wine. I guess there's a reason I've never heard about the rosé. <laughs> I'm just glad I haven't picked it up yet, because that's actually surprising that I, for as much as I love Target, that I have not picked up their $5 rosé. I have well, done the the collection, the $10 one. That one's good. It's not great. Well, now it's good. I'm- now I'm scared because when I was there, I got a bottle of this, a bottle of the cab, and a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc. Because I was like, oh, $5, yeah. Well, now I don't know what to think. Honestly, worst case scenario, it becomes cooking wine. Are you going to save it for cooking? No. Remember that time that I bought the rosé that actually wasn't a rosé? It was just a fucking sweet pink wine. And I was like, I'm going to use this to make cocktails. And I definitely did that. Yes, you did. I should have just thrown it away. The cocktail was fine, but I've had better. <laughs> that's that's wasteful. But okay, I'm sorry. Uh, your case, um, she notices the burning building with no power. Yes. So Deborah, like I was trying to say before Tyler was um, taken to another plane of existence. That's happened happening multiple times. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> it's happening to you a lot today, I guess. <laughs> so Deborah automatically, her gut is telling her, somebody set this house on fire. Her gut is telling her something's just not right about that. (laughs) And out of the corner of my eye, I saw him dragging a dead horse through the entire restaurant. And I said, okay, something, something about that just don't sit right with me. Y'all, Cola Scola is wonderful. Check him out. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So Deborah knew this house had totally been set on fire like this was done intentionally yeah so the firefighters in Accomack county responded and this turned out to be the first of 76 fires in a five-month arson spree wow then just after one in the morning on november 13th so just three hours and 13 miles away from where the first fire was a woman named helen hasty took her dog out and she saw something else on fire. There were some surrounding outbuildings on the farm she owned that were ablaze. Oh. Then eight minutes after that, the next 911 call came in. 
It was a brush fire that had been set near a ditch. 21 hours after that, a sheriff's deputy on his way home called to report that an abandoned house was burning. Another call followed at 10.45 p.m., and then another at 11.43. Jesus. So basically, just a little over 24 hours after the first fire had been set, there were six. So Virginia's burning. Accomack County, yeah. Fires everywhere. And Accomack County is on this 70-mile-long eastern shore off the coast of Virginia Beach. It's a really isolated area, and there's a lot of abandoned homes. One of the things that Hess noted in her book is that arson is a really weird crime. So when you think about it, it's not like theft. You know, it you're not going to get money. You're not going to get something that you're trying to steal, like, that you're wanting. It's also not like murder. You're not going to get rid of someone that you don't like. And oftentimes, arson seems like it's there to satisfy some type of emotional desire rather than a material one. So it's, there's a lot of nuances when it comes to arson and why people do this. And actually only about 17% of arsonists are ever caught. Wow. I guess honestly, though, since it's a crime that really does not have a tangible motive, if you're not, you know, if you're not burning down someone's house to get back at them. Right. If you're just like burning down stuff to burn down stuff, and there, there's by nature no way to attach you to that. So kind of unless you drop your ID next to it or, you know, leave specific evidence or someone sees you, um, there's not a lot that, yeah, I, I absolutely can understand why so few would be caught. Yeah, not easy to tie someone to it. So Diane Williams, she's an arson profiler, and she's the founder of the Center for Arson Research. She's interviewed over a thousand arsonists, and based on her research, she's divided arsonists into a few categories. Revenge arsonists, thrill seekers, disoriented coping fire starters. So generally arsonists fall into one of these three categories and most of the time they're white. Most of them are men. And some of them, such as John Orr, which you may have heard of this guy without knowing you've heard of this guy. He was this thrill-seeking arsonist who lit about 2,000 fires in Southern California. Yes. While he maintained a job as a fire investigator. We've done him. I think you did. Or we've talked about him. Like, he has come up. And yeah. So, yeah, he was one of those thrill-seekers. He, like loved his secret that he was creating, like this havoc. So in Hess's book, and in a lot of these articles I read, we quickly learn this whodunit. We know who the arsonists are. The big question in this case is the why. So there are two culprits for these fires in Accomack County. The first is Charlie Smith. He is a formerly drug-addicted mechanic. He's a really likable guy. And Tanya Bundick, who was troubled, she was a single mom, and um, she was a very beautiful woman, known in the town by a lot of people, and the two of them were together. They were kind of an unlikely couple, but when they first started dating, like, things were hot and heavy. 
I mean, I get it. Mechanics are hot. Like, there is something about that being able to do that stuff with your hands and, like, fix things that is hot. Yeah. I mean, I also am, like, very much a proponent of, um, I don't know, I'm I'm one of those, like, I try to be a very independent woman, so I like to be able to do that stuff on my own. But I get what yeah. you're saying. It is is still attractive when someone can do those things. Not not trying to like shit all over what you just said. I agree. Oh yeah, no, I want I want them to teach me. Yes. Yep. That was what I was always about. Because in high school, I dated a lot of the guys that knew stuff about cars because I found it really interesting. But not like not necessarily in a just to watch them do it. Like while I did do that, I also wanted them to teach me what they were doing. Yeah. So when things were going well, Charlie and Tanya both had great jobs. Charlie owned a body shop. Tanya owned an apparel store. And they were even planning to get married. They had like a theme for their wedding called November oh. Rain, which they they loosely based this on the 1991 Guns N' Roses video. Although, one thing to note about that video, the bride um, mysteriously dies at the end. So, kind of weird that that was their inspiration. I mean, if no one dies, was it really even a wedding? Oh, my God. So, as their relationship, though, goes on and things start to falter, money gets really tight. Even at a certain point, they're eating their food out of a dumpster behind a grocery store. So, things like really fell. So things aren't going really well. And they ended up finding an outlet for their frustrations by using some old rags and some matches during some long night drives. There's more to the story, though. But let's flip back to the beginning and how they met. The two met at one of the county's only real options for nightlife. It was this place called Shuckers. It was described by a lot of the locals. (laughs) Oh, wait, wait till I get to what they describe it as, okay? You just wait. Also, it's exactly what you're picturing in your head. So I thought so. <laughs> so basically, the the referred to it as Studio 54 with pickup trucks. Honestly, work. <laughs> Charlie was a little bit intimidated by Tanya, and so when they got together, he couldn't believe that this actually worked out and things were going really well. But he. He's kind of a little bit scared and he's wanting to be everything he could be for her. And this this whole anxiety that he had about the situation, it manifested in a way that he hated because um, as, and I quote, he later said to the cops, the moment I fell in love with her, my dick stopped working. Oh, so he well. He, uh, he couldn't get it up. So... Charlie is desperately in love with Tanya, and he wants to do anything he can to make her happy. Like, he feels like he has won the lottery, and he don't want to lose this. He don't want to fuck it up. But he got a bad dick. But he can't get it up. (laughs) Yep. So randomly, on a night in November in 2012, Charlie and Tanya are out driving around, and Tanya suddenly turns to Charlie and says, I want you to set that house on fire. Oh, no, that's not just a red flag. That's She just opened the door to the red flag factory. She did. And he was really good. Burn that house down, Charlie. He's like, okay, did you still want to go to Olive Garden or? (laughs) So he's really confused, but he wants to make her happy. 
So he got out of the car and he came back and he said that it was done. And then for the first time in months, she seemed really happy. And so, you know, he was like, shit, I've been disappointing her for so long. It's it's so great to see her happy. I thought she was about to leave me. I finally did something right. But then Tanya wanted to check out the flames later that night. Because, I mean, obviously, if she's asking for it, she wants to see it. And that's... What- I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that goes for a lot of things. Yes. If I ask for it, I want to see it. Present it to me. I mean, the fire, right? That's all I'm talking about. So Tanya's like, show me the fire. I want to go see the flames. And then Charlie has to be like, okay, well, I actually didn't set it. I just told you I did. Okay, yeah, that's the responsible thing, I guess. Well, she reportedly was like, kind of annoyed and exacerbated and was like, never send a man to do a woman's job. And so they went back and burned the house down. Charlie told the cops, uh, according to Hess, that they then burned 66 more after that. Jesus Christ. So um, I did see I, one thing I did want to point out. I've seen the number of fires at 67 and also 76. So oh, okay. point being shit ton of fires. Yeah, that's weird. But is it wrong if I'm like, there's kind of something badass about her being like, you know what? You won't burn it down. I guess I will. But he's also like, oh shit, my dick sucks, so I better burn down these houses. Like, that's weird. Go to a gas station and get those, like, slutty hornet pills for the, like, <laughs> truck drivers. <laughs> you know the ones I'm talking about that are, like, rock hard titanium nitroglycerin explosion dick pills. And you're like, <laughs> do I want that? I'm actually scared to ingest this because I would be that kind of shit. For Will my I gas have station? a dick after? No, it's gonna fucking fall off. It's gonna blow up. Oh my god! Maybe cause a fire. But um, yeah. I, okay. Why'd you burn down the house? My dick sucks. She wanted to see fire. Okay. And, and you're getting to a big point of the case. Oh lord. So all these fires are blazing all over Accomack County. And law enforcement is doing a lot of things to just try to to catch whoever is doing this. They're sleeping in tents. They have security hammers hung from trees. Neighbors, suspected neighbors. But then at the same time, they're also joining the all-volunteer firefighter department. And they're just trying, like the community is coming together to figure out who did this while also looking at each other suspiciously and being like, was it you? Oh, they're like, oh my God, who did this, Marjorie? (laughs) Exactly. The neighborhood got used to constantly seeing buildings on fire, and they would point fingers at each other. At night, the roads, which were normally pitch black, would turn into this sea of checkpoints, cop cars everywhere. Citizens trying to get home while there's also fires burning. So literally, just imagine this. Like, it used to be like your nightly commute home. It It's dark and, you know, pretty much pitch black because everything's pretty spread out here. And you go home and you're done. You have dinner. Well, now there's like cop lights everywhere. There's checkpoints. There's fires burning all around. There's like always one going on. And at the height of the crime spree, mostly every single night... 
this was the situation. Wow. Firemen started just sleeping at the station. They didn't even bother to go home. Law enforcement, they were all over the area. They were staked out at the abandoned buildings. They were hoping to see something suspicious. They were hoping that maybe this building that they were at could be the next one and they would they would catch the arsonist before this happened. Police also started using computer programs trying to find some pattern in the fires, but Tanya and Charlie, there was no pattern. There was no real motive other than he was really pissed off and embarrassed of this secret that was impacting their romance, aka flaccid penis. He could go to the doctor. I know. Literally, it's like, to me, the way I see this, I'm like, yo, dude, you're like psyching yourself out. Or it could be an actual medical issue. This police department spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and thousands of hours trying to track down the vandals. So Virginia State Troopers Troy Johnson and Willie Burke, they had been sitting in their patrol car for about three hours. It was April Fool's 2013. And after about 8 p.m., they, like, this is when they drove up. They set up their equipment, night vision goggles, a portable radio, a hunter's camouflage pup tent. So they're just staking out this abandoned house because they think maybe it's the next one. And then at about 11.25, Troy Johnson saw a gold minivan stop in the road. Ew. (laughs) Oh, I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Ew. He drives a gold minivan like a fucking Chrysler town and country. Well, it's not. But gold. It's not his car. It's Tanya's car. Okay. Okay. I don't care. (laughs) She drives it. That's nasty. (laughs) So they see this gold van stop in the road. A passenger gets out and then they, they just start like this dead sprint towards this abandoned house. Johnson saw a series of sparks and they waited because they needed to see like, okay, did we, did we see what we think we just saw? We need to see if this is actually catching on fire. Because again, like if this isn't their arsonist, then they blow their cover. So they've got to see if this is really what they think it is. Yeah. Once the fire takes They see this figure run back towards the road and Johnson and Burke chased after. And again, they're out in this tent. They're not in their car. They're out in this tent that they had set up, like the camouflage tent completely hidden. So by the time they clear the forest, they see the minivan and this figure jumps into the passenger seat and the van drives off. So Burke, who had been a police officer for nine years, and he's the one that had the radio, he used it to alert all the nearby units. Because again, like, all of the cops are out every single night. Uh, yeah. The police vehicle that had Accomack County's Sergeant Sheriff, Wayne Greer, he was the first to respond. He saw the minivan, pulled it over at a traffic light about half a mile down the road, so they did not get far. Charlie Smith emerges from the passenger side. He immediately puts his hands up and a state trooper who had arrived shortly after Greer approached the driver and it was Tanya. Charlie and Tanya were arrested, driven to separate police stations and taken into interrogation rooms. So even before this whole fire starting thing, Charlie had been in prison twice. 
The first time it was for forgery, and the second time was for stealing a cordless drill, an air compressor, a battery charger, and a propane torch from someone's home. So, like, breaking and entering and stealing shit. Mm -hmm. And when he was interrogated about the break-in, he didn't make any excuses. He actually said the battery charger was for the cordless drill. Like, so he's just kind of one of those people that's just, like, very frank about, you know... Yeah, this is this is what it is. That's why I why got it. Why did you steal these things? Well, they went together, and I wanted, I needed both. Like I needed the charger, Ovs. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't want to have to throw away the drill after stealing it because <laughs> the battery's dead. So Charlie, he didn't really have a lot of self control, and he did spend a lot of his life dealing with addiction. And he he stopped doing drugs when he and Tanya first got together because she was a single mother and she was basically like, I'm not going to have that shit around my kids. And he wanted to be with her bad enough that he he quit. But he could not blame any of these crimes on that drug use, on that past, because like I said, he was completely clean at this time. But he did still smoke cigarettes. And at one point during his interrogation, he asked the police for a cigarette investigator said yes and they made a call to grab him a lighter and he replies oh i got a lighter literally while he is being interrogated or arson he's like don't worry i have lots of creative ways i can make a far excuse us (laughs) so when tanya and charlie were finally caught charlie confessed but he refused to rat out tanya because he was still desperately in love with her so he he took the fall for it Tanya Bundick denied everything, and she blamed the fires on Charlie. She had actually only been caught at one fire, and it was the one where they were arrested. And there wasn't any evidence linking her to any of the other fires. Because like I said, actual evidence linking people like hard. And it, it seems like she was more so the getaway driver. Also, later, you know, we find out Charlie says she's, it was like her idea. So as the trials are going on, Charlie refused to even testify against her. That is until he found out through his lawyer that while he was in jail, she started seeing someone else. And so Charlie changed his tune. He's like, what? Because he's still, again, like desperately in love with her. And this was like all for Tanya. This is so wrapped into like for her why he did all of this. And basically, oh, that's the that's the title of the Lifetime movie about this. All for Tanya. <laughs> oh my god! The Lifetime story of fire, sex, and broken dicks. <laughs> so, Charlie changes his tune. He does testify against Tanya, and this is when Tanya starts to realize, like, okay, shit, like I'm, I'm not in a good position here. This looks bad for me, and so she entered an Alfred plea. And as a, ri- a reminder, an Alfred plea is means that they acknowledge there was enough evidence to convict without having to plead guilty to the crime. So it's like you say, I'm guilty because there's enough evidence to, to say that I am, but I'm not saying I actually did it. Alfred pleas are very Semantics. interesting to me. Well, yeah. and it depends. Like some people will enter an Alfred plea because it's literally like, okay, I didn't do this, but what you have makes it look like I did. And I have nothing to prove against that. Or it's in situations like this where she's basically like, (laughs) I said, (laughs) shit, um, Alfred, okay, yes. So anyway, 
Tanya was sentenced to 17 years in prison and Charlie got 15. So she actually, oh. she actually got more in her plea, but that's, that's that. There's honestly so, so, so much I didn't go into. Hess's book goes into so much detail about Charlie, about Tanya, about what was behind their motive. But when it comes down to it, it really was Charlie trying to do something to desperately hang on to Tanya and to keep her happy. And it blows my mind when you think about that being the reason for over 60 fires. Like, thank God no one was actually hurt, as far as I know, in any of these, because they were all abandoned homes. But the abandoned homes, like, people did still own them. Like, a lot of those were homes that people in the town owned as, like, a potential fixer-upper, just whatever. Like, so the property damage is just out the wazoo in this case. And I just think about all of the man hours and all of the time and everything that was spent on this. The firefighters who couldn't even go home because Mm -hmm. these fires were breaking out every night. And they were volunteer firefighters. Like... Yeah. Well... And also the fact that it doesn't sound like they actually gave a fuck if people got hurt. Like, yes, they were targeting abandoned places, but for all they know, uh, maybe someone who was homeless was living in that in that abandoned house. I mean, that's true. Or maybe some local teenagers were like, I don't know, broke into the abandoned house to drink there or something and could have all died in the fire. Like, it doesn't sound like they were like... Oh, before we burn this down, let's check. Make sure no one's here. Make sure it's safe. Okay. Coast is clear. Let's burn this shit down. Like, no. No, it seems like he was just setting them. So if this little preview, honestly, because again, like I said, there's so much detail in this case. If this interests you, definitely check out American Fire by Monica Hess. It's a great book. I am actually really wanting to go back and like, restart it completely and read the whole thing but yeah that is my case that is the the fires in Accomack county love fire nice. and broken dicks yeah so tyler tell me about your arsonist so my case is one that um i've known about for a little bit i didn't oh. know the details um it's one we'll get into it and you'll see like why it, it hits close to home I didn't know the details, though, and it is a case that, uh, I'm gonna prepare y'all. Angry Tyler will come out, uh, by the end of it. Ooh, Angry Tyler, man, honestly, sometimes he's really entertaining. Sometimes you just really can't believe he went there. So I'm interested to see how angry Angry Tyler gets. Okay. Well, with that note, the case I'm talking about today is the Upstairs Lounge Arson Attack. The source I used, a Ranker article by Eric Lewis, the Wikipedia page for the attack, and an article from the New Orleans Historical by Paper Monuments, Frank Perez, and Liz Lerman. So the Upstairs Lounge, it was a gay bar, and it was on the second floor of a building at the corner of Chartres and Iberville Streets in the French Quarter of New Orleans. Oh, so this is a NOLA one. We have not had mm-hmm. a NOLA case in a while, probably since our NOLA episode. Yeah. 
So the upstairs lounge, it was a friendly neighborhood bar. It afforded gay men a safe space to gather, enjoy each other's company. And even being in the French Quarter, which had the very, like, anything goes reputation. Right. In the early 70s, gay bars were routinely raided. And being out of the closet was, like, unthinkable. Like, it's the 70s. You didn't come out of the closet. And when I was in New Orleans, before, like, we as a family went, I went to the Golden Lantern, which is, like, the, one of the oldest gay bars in the city, and it's there in the French Quarter. I really um, wanted to go to that one. We just weren't able to make it there. Yeah. I mean, it's it's probably one of my favorite places, because it's, it's a gay bar, but it's also very low-key and almost, like, divey in a good way. Like, you could probably get, like, a $6 burger there. Dude, I want to go back to New Orleans. Just side note, I really, really loved it, and I I want to go back. I want to go back and do it in a locals way. Yeah. But that's how I feel when I visit any city, is I don't... I mean, obviously, the first time I visit, I want to see a lot of the touristy stuff, a lot of the things the city's famous for. But my favorite part about visiting other cities and other countries is... Like, seeing more of, like, what is the local culture, going to, like, mom-and-pop restaurants, and going to maybe shows at, like, the community theater, not the, like, you know, the big famous ones and stuff. Because I feel like through food and through the routines of people who actually live there, that's how you're most able to, like, actually absorb the real feeling and culture of a city. Absolutely. I 100% agree. So, this is New Orleans. This is the early 70s. And this is the Upstairs Lounge. On Sundays, it had its weekly beer bust, which was like they, like a discount. I think, like, I was about to say, like, dollar beers, but it's the 70s, so a dollar for beer is probably expensive. <laughs> I don't know, nickel beers. Whatever the 70s would have been. But, like, they had deals on beer on Sundays, and... And it was attended by a lot of members from the Metropolitan Community Church. This was a newer church. It was a gay-friendly denomination. And it was one of the first in the nation. I love that. And, like, the New Orleans MCC, which Metropolitan Community Church, known as the MCC, they once even, like, held worship services um, in the bar's, like, entertainment area. Like, the preacher would stand on the stage and the congregation would you know be out at the tables and stuff right before they had a place of their own so on sunday evening june 24th 1973 it is pride weekend um there in new orleans so i mean in america it's there's a lot of pride celebrations going on but also in new orleans and they're also having their regular like beer bust you know discount thing so there's a lot of people there And the crowd that generally comes to the Upstairs Lounge, it's generally gay men that are more, like, blue-collar. Like, it is is really your, like, typical bar, but it's a safe haven for gay men in New Orleans. Yeah. So, the beer bust, it's from 5 to 7 at night. And during that, there's about 110 patrons that are there at the bar. After the drink special's over, there's anywhere between 60 and 90 people there. Um, they're listening to a pianist play. 
Um, and they're also discussing an like upcoming MCC fundraiser for the local crippled children's hospital. So it's again, it's yes, it's a gay bar, but it really is a gay community space. Yeah, they're doing so much. Yeah. I mean, it's where, like, there's a lot of church people there. There's a lot of, it's it's the safe haven. Yeah. That also happens to sell alcohol kind of thing. That evening, a young man named Roger Dale Nunez was, like, kicked out of the bar for being, like, really drunk. He was belligerent. He was harassing people. And as they were escorting him out of the bar, he threatened to come back and, quote unquote, burn you all out. Oh, God. Oh, that's scary foreshadowing. Yeah. I mean, no one at the time thought he was serious or meant anything by it, but he was. So at 7.56 p.m., there was a buzzer downstairs. Because, like, that's how you get into the bar. You, like, buzz, and then you go up the stairs. So a buzzer sounds at the bartender, Buddy Rasmussen. He's a former Air Force veteran. He hears the buzzer, and... He's assuming it's like a taxi cab driver who's like, oh, I'm here to pick someone up. So he asks another guy, Luther Boggs, to answer the door. When Boggs opens the door, like that leads down to the staircase, he finds the front of it just engulfed in flames. And he also smells lighter fluid. Immediately, Rasmussen sees the fire in the stairwell, and he leads about 20 patrons out the back exit of the bar, Onto the roof where they can jump to the neighboring building's roof to get out. Because remember, they're at the second floor. Right. And the stairs are on fire. Oh my god. That's the only way out. By this point, only a few moments have passed and the entire bar is on fire. So it definitely seems like there was an accelerant. If it if it spread that quickly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, obviously, this wasn't an accident. Like, I I know that because we're talking arson. But when fires go up and engulf that fast, it's like, okay, there had to be an accelerant involved. Well, and it also, one of the things when, like, reading about fires, there are sometimes, especially, like, older buildings or especially buildings in dry areas where sometimes there isn't an accelerant. And it just... And a whole building can burn down in minutes. Oh, my God. I mean, that makes sense. But I... In my head, I just think fast fire means, like... I mean, I think lighter fluid or gasoline. Yeah. But anyway, at this point, the entire upstairs lounge is ablaze. Yeah. Other people looked at the floor-to-ceiling windows that the club had as, like, that's how they were able to get out. Like, that was their best means of escape. But... There were safety bars on the windows that had, like, 14-inch gaps between them because they didn't want people that were, like, dancing at the bar to fall, you know, fall against the window because they're drunk and fall out. So there's safety bars across the windows. And 14 inches, I mean, if you're skinny, you can fit through that. But that's, you know... That's not a wide space. That's small. Several people did manage to open the win- like open the windows because they were like windows that you'd like raise um, and squeeze through the gaps and then jump down from the second floor to the street below. Oh my god. But by that point, a lot of people were jumping and they were on fire. Oh my god. So they were these burning people jumping from the building. 
Luther Boggs, um, so that the guy who was the first to see the fire, he was one of the people that jumped out of the window on fire after he made sure his female friend got out of the building and she jumped first. The flames on him, like he landed on the ground still on fire. The owner of a neighboring bar came over to like, you know, put the fire out, but he wound up dying 16 days later uh, from third degree burns that covered 50% of his body. Oh my God. I can't imagine the pain of that. Uh, no. I mean, the only, the only blessing is that by the time third degree burns happen, you're burned through your muscle, like the nerves are dead. But to get to that point is unimaginable. Well, and then like the the 16 days when he was yeah. hopefully healing, but unfortunately didn't, like that is excruciating. I Oh my God. And that's yeah. just one of these 100 plus victims. Yeah. The reverend of the MCC, Bill Larson, he kicked out an air conditioning unit that was in one of the windows and he was attempting to get out when the upper pane of glass like the top of the window fell on top of him and it pinned him in the window, like half in half out of the building. And he wound up burning to death with his body stuck there hanging out of the window. That is nightmarish. That's so graphic. This is, oh my God, horrific. This is beyond horrific. I mean, his, his like charred and blackened body like was visible to anyone who looked at, was looking at the fire or taking pictures and everything because he was just he was stuck there yeah the assistant pastor to mcc george mitch mitchell he managed to escape but when he got out he realized his partner louis broussard was still inside so he went back in both of them wound up dying in the fire and their bodies were found clinging to each other Mitchell's children were actually visiting from out of town at this time. Like, their dad had, I guess, like, done church and was at the bar and they were at his house. And they wound up, like, watching the same movie seven times, waiting for their dad to get back. Because they were like, where the fuck is dad? Eventually, though, a friend took them to the airport and sent them home to their mom without telling them what happened to their dad and his partner. This is the 70s. This is how being gay was treated. So they didn't even know their dad was dead? No, they just knew he didn't come back. Now I'm like, did they ever know? I'm so curious. I mean, now they do, but I have no idea how long it took. God, that's so fucked up. Yeah. Firefighters were actually stationed just like two blocks away, but they were blocked. They couldn't get to the bar. There were cars pedestrians everywhere one fire truck even tried to like drive on the sidewalk to get around the cars but they crashed into a taxi and weren't able to get to the bar as quickly eventually they did get there and they arrived to see this entire building on fire people on fire hanging out of windows trying to get out people jumping on fire and they were pretty quickly able to, like, get hoses, get the fire under control. And this entire thing, from the fire starting to it being put out, 
was only about 16 minutes. 16? Oh my god. Oh my god. I was picturing like 45 minutes to an hour of this going on. 16 minutes? 16. Like when, like the fire going from the stairs are on fire to the whole place, I think must have been like two or three minutes. Which makes sense as to why so many people had a hard time getting out, because it was very Mm -hmm. quick. In all, 32 people were killed, and another 15 were injured. And until the 2016 Orlando nightclub shooting at Pulse, where 49 people were murdered, the upstairs lounge arson attack was the deadliest attack in the U.S. against a gay club. Or the deadliest gay murder motivated right thing the official investigation though it didn't yield any convictions the only suspect in the attack was roger dale nunez um who'd been kicked out of the bar earlier after fighting with customers and again yelled like i'm gonna burn this shit down basically yeah the guy who literally said he was gonna do it and then it happened Mm -hmm. pretty shortly after Police attempted to question him, but he was actually in the hospital with a broken jaw that I think was unrelated um, and couldn't respond. But also the main part is the police really didn't give a shit. They really did not care about investigating the crime, about questioning him. There were a lot of people that were like, oh, well, when you're gay, shit happens. Oh my god. Yeah. Eventually, Nunez was questioned, and the police records show that he didn't appear that he was nervous when he was being questioned. And there was another witness who claimed that, like, oh yeah, Nunez had been in and out of the bar, like, 10 to 20 minutes before the fire, and no one else had really entered or left the building during that time. He was, like, the last person seen before the fire, But the witness who said that was stressed. So the police dismissed them as a liar. They're like, oh, they're stressed saying this? They're a liar. The club fucking burned down and they were in it. And their friends probably died. But I'm sorry, yep, being stressed means you're a liar. Uh, Someone being stressed is being a lot more honest and truthful than someone who's calm and cool and collected. I mean, yeah, but really what it comes down to is... They didn't give a shit that a bunch of gay men died. That's exactly what it comes down to. A friend of Nunez later would go to investigators and tell them that Nunez confessed on at least four occasions that he started the fire. He told the friend that he squirted the bottom of the steps with lighter fluid that he got at a local Walgreens and then threw a match. He said he didn't realize at the time that the whole place would go up in flames, but he did it. In November of 1974, Nunez took his own life and died by suicide, but he was never really looked into as, or investigated as a suspect in the case, really. And in 1980, the state fire marshal's office, they didn't have any leads, other than all the leads I've told you about already, Uh, so they closed the case. Coverage of this fire by news outlets completely disregarded and minimized the fact that lgbtq patrons were the majority of the victims um they talked about like you know a bar in the french quarter burned down and 32 people died 
but made no mention that it was a hate crime and that it was an attack against gay people. But editorials and talk show hosts sure as fuck did talk about it, and they made light of it and joked about it. Joked about like, oh, a bunch of fairies burning to death. Oh my god, are you actually fucking kidding me? Uh Uh-huh. And no government officials made any mention of the fire. Like, nobody gave a shit. Nobody cared. The governor, the mayor, the president, like, no one talked about it. Like, there is a reason why... This isn't very well known. This isn't well known. Yeah. That, like, you know, I feel like... Like, yes, I'm a member of the LGBTQ plus community, so I've done my own research and stuff. But even more than that, like, people know about Stonewall. People know about Pulse. A lot of that because, you know, we were alive for it. Uh, People know about Harvey Milk. But people have not heard of the Upstairs Lounge. The public reaction to the tragedy, to this arson attack, very much also reflected the homophobia of the time. Yeah. Again, no politician had a single word to say about it. The archbishop, he forbade Catholic funerals for the victims. What? And many other churches in the area refused to hold funerals for the dead because they were gay. They don't have a gay person in their church for the funeral. And some of the victims' families were so ashamed that they refused to claim the bodies of the victims. God. Because that that would admit that their loved one, their family member, was gay. And that couldn't fucking happen. We can't have that. So instead, we're going to let their body stay unidentified. This is so, so frustrating on so many levels. Because it's like people like to think that being attracted to the same sex is something that is like new and like just came about in the last hundred years and i'm like can you just take a fucking second and just look at the romans because also why is that not talked about more like it is Mm -hmm. and we just like i don't not necessarily ignore but kind of ignore like we like oh yeah you know this guy liked this dude and that was you know that guy came over and you know they were lovers you just skip right past it but i'm just like why why are you okay with that and you can't be okay with people today loving who they want to love. Like, ooh! I mean, shit, fucking history completely ignores the very obvious fact of how fucking gay everyone has always been. Yes! Like, like this is the not Romans, new! The Greeks, gay as fuck. But then you read histories and they're like, oh... You know, unfortunately, he never married. He did, however, live with his best friend Thomas and his extensive scarf selection, and they died in each other's arms. What good friends. And I'm like, they were gay, Mary. They were gay. And shit, like, I remember seeing an interview with Pete Buttigieg, who, for those outside the States, um, he ran for the Democratic nomination for president, and he was the first like openly gay man to do that and this interview he was asked they were like what you know if you get the presidency what are your thoughts on being the first gay president and he was like i'd be the first openly gay president i don't think for by any means i'd be the first gay president and they were like who do you think and he was like 
Look, it's not for me to say, but I don't think I'd be the first. I love that answer. It's Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was fucking gay. Read about Abraham Lincoln's relationship with his bodyguard. Like, come the fuck on, y'all. But also, this is one of the things, like, when people, like, this last year in Boston, there was the straight pride parade. Like, fucking straight people getting all up in arms about... Why is there gay pride? There needs to be straight pride. It's like, because shit like this, because when bars are burned down and 30 people die and it's just a, you know, straight people bar, it's the front of the news. The president, you know, talks about it and gives a mournful speech. The governor visits and lays flowers on it. But uh, when it's gay, it's completely ignored. The investigation isn't even looked into. And this is this is my history. I know. This is why we have pride. This is years after Stonewall, but this is what we're talking about. But then we still flash forward to just a couple years ago, Pulse. This shit happens still. This still this happens every fucking day. This is why we have LGBTQ pride, because People in my community are murdered for being lesbian or being gay or bisexual or transgender or gender nonconforming or anything outside of the heteronormative normal, quote unquote. And nobody out there is being murdered or targeted because they're straight. Yeah. Because they conform to like gender norms, you know, they're cisgendered and stuff. That is why. Pride is so fucking important. That's why we have it, because we face these obstacles because of who we are. Just because I was born liking men, I'm a lot more likely to get murdered or sexually assaulted or attacked. That's why we have a community and we're coming together. And that's fucking why straight pride is garbage, because every fucking day is straight pride. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's like, you know why there's not a straight pride parade? Because every fucking day is straight pride. You get to live your life without fear, without worrying for the safety of your life. And you can love who you love. Yeah. Oh, my God. This is fucking garbage. But jumping back into my case... One of the things that breaks my heart so fucking much is to this day, almost 50 years later, there are still victims who remain unidentified. Oh, my God. Because their families were too ashamed to have a gay person in the family or even someone who was associated with this. Because let's be fucking real. I don't think by any means that every single person who was in this bar on this day was gay. But the idea... That you could have a family member who may have been, who may have been gay or even associated with gay people. Absolutely not. So you're not even going to identify their body. You care so little about this person who you claim to love that to this day, almost 50 years later, they're unidentified victims from the upstairs lounge arson attack. And that is my case. You know, I totally get it. I understand why Angry Tyler was there. And like I said, Angry Brittany came out to play too. So you guys, you know, we don't fuck around. We spit the truth. We bring we bring the cases that bring on the, the discussions and the frustrations. And we spit fire on these tracks, yo. <laughs> we definitely do. 
And if you have enjoyed this conversation, if you want to be a part of this, if you want to let us know what you thought, please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate those five stars. We appreciate hearing hearing what you thought. Also, make sure to like us and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Find us there. Like us. Follow us. Do all the things. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I am fired up. I'm feeling like, I, oof, I don't even know. So many emotions are going on right now. Yeah, honestly, this started as like arson, fire, and there is a different kind of fire. It's a passion fire that I am ready to unleash. This is my fight song. Basically fucking though. But yes, I think this episode we tackled fire in multiple different ways. Agreed. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye. The way my wine is still awful. Bye.